Hello, you're listening to Northern Stages Podcast. When we say podcast, we mean a conversation. A conversation we held on Monday the 21st of September. This week, we talked to Bethan Kitchen from Brash. Bethan and I talk about the North East, the juggling act of running a company, and Married at First Sight Australia. It's eclectic, and that is a wonderful thing. Give your ears some joy. Afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Northern Stages Podcast. Um, this week, as always, I'm joined by the constantly silent producer Johnny and Bethan Kitchen from Brash. Hey, Bethan, how are you? Hello. Yeah, I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I'm all right. Yeah, I'm all right. I'll be better when this is all over. Um, but still, you know, yeah. fingers crossed. I think of the, you know, pint half full rather than half empty. Um, yeah, it's taking a lot of um, resilience for us all to keep that attitude for the whole time, I think. It really is. No, definitely. Um, thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time today. So essentially, we're just going to talk about you, if that's okay. That's absolutely fine. <laughs> so I'm going to jump right in. And um, so for those who don't know you, who are you and what do you do? Um, so I'm Bethan um, and um, I my main kind of role um, is the artistic director and also the writer for uh, Brash Theatre Company. Um, and basically it's just my role to kind of manage the artistic direction of what we do as a company with uh, young people, um, kind of what our vision is, how that might change according to like what's going on at the moment um and basically just kind of write all the shows but through our work with young people um yeah that's my that's it in a nutshell <laughs> i wasn't very concise of course it was um <laughs> so not much then so you write it you direct it uh you and i know from previous conversations with you you do everything else around brash um, so essentially, well done you for keeping that going. Um, how did Brash come about? Uh, well, it kind of started actually when I didn't, I wasn't living in Newcastle at the time. I'd, I'd, I'd moved down south for a few years, um, but I was still making theatre. And I think the reason that I started this company in particular was because I was just getting so sick of like being kind of stereotyped or stigmatised as, like, a young Geordie woman, Um, particularly in the South. Like, you kind of, like, fit into that bracket of, oh, this is about the North, let's ask Bethan. This is about a woman, like, this is all feminist, let's ask our kind of, like, um, resident feminist, rather than kind of everyone taking the responsibility of learning about, um, about women and the North and things like that. Um... And so I kind of, it kind of came from like an anger of like just lack of control as well over the representation of young Geordie women in particular. Um, So that's kind of how it started. It's definitely evolved since then. And since I've moved back to the Northeast, um, it's really like evolved according to the needs of people living here. But um, that's, that was how it all started when I lived in Oxford and I was sick of all the rich people, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> it kept so born you know, of anger. <laughs> I think that's really interesting about, you know, the class divide both in our industry and also in our country. And I know that you'd sort of focus a lot of your brain space on providing opportunities for working class uh, actors, uh, yeah. 
people. Um, and is that something that you've always felt strongly about or did it come directly from Oxford? Um, no, it's, I mean, it's always been something I've really cared about. My mum's side of the family is uh, like born and bred working class. And um, I've always felt, I've always kind of lived in that kind of awareness of how different life is for a working class person versus a middle class person and so it's always been very important especially like my uni especially when I went to university as well being one of the only I mean I was like one of one of the only two northerners like in my college northern women and as well as that um like I would never invite my friends to my house because I've been at their house and uh it's I would be embarrassed um so I've been very aware of that my whole life but definitely like as as my adulthood went on um and living amongst such like people who have so much privilege that definitely fueled um fueled that and but in the northeast I think it's a very different sort of class dynamics than it is down south um and I think it's a lot easier to kind of build communities um like based across classes than it is it's a lot easier to build a theatre company that that helps working class people in the northeast I think definitely you mentioned that there's you you noticed the distinct difference between what you term as middle class and working class yeah what what are those do you think those differences are like especially around access and opportunities and possibility um I think there's like multiple differences and I think I think a lot of where my focus is particularly um for the company is the cultural difference in terms of access to opportunity access to um just like awareness of what's going on and also the kind of, um, I mean, the massive thing is the sense of entitlement versus imposter syndrome, um, I think. And there's like, it doesn't matter if a space is free or if it's like on the surface accessible, that actually is like only a tiny thing, a tiny way towards being accessible for for working class people. Um, There needs to be a whole kind of structural, cultural change that, that completely changes the way that the the people from a very young age are given access to these to these kind of worlds um given exposure to them given the sense that they belong in those spaces and that like that their voice is just as valid as other people's um I spent way too long in London like trying to make my voice feel valid and it's like it's 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 a cultural thing that you can't break like unless we massively change like the way that society works essentially because it won't just be the theatre industry, it's it's every yeah. single industry, it'll be exactly the same. Um, people are never never going to feel like their voice is as valuable, as talented, as intelligent, just because they've never been told that. Yeah, totally. Completely agree with that. I think that's, you know, it's, it's really interesting, like, especially in the last sort of 10 years, I've been really thinking about that, about how we don't tend to lead ourselves to possibility because we don't think we're worthy. And I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there about imposter syndrome where, you know, people from other classes can go, yeah, I can have that. I'm entitled to that. And I think that gives a different level of confidence. And also how organisations tend to trust people that can sort of 
have that level of confidence to, because as you said, I think they've since at a very early age, they've been trained to believe that's a possibility for them. Um, oh yeah, completely. And that makes me really angry, to be honest. I think it's, it. what makes me most angry about it is that there's a facade that like things are for everyone. Um, and that like, you can spend literally like years and years and years trying to break into something, trying to break into an industry that is never going to let you in. And it's the lack of honesty about that, that I find most frustrating. Like it took me so long to discover that rather than applying for these different like uh, courses or different programs or uh, like emailing to people trying to like network go for like countless coffees spend way too much money like traveling to London trying to network with the right people like it took me so many years to realize that that I should have just been doing it all myself and that's what brash is like it's you know in the space of like two three years we've built something up that 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 we never, that I never could have achieved by just trying to knock on people's doors that don't want to be knocked on. Um, and I think there needs to be more transparency about the way that the industry works. Um, to be honest, I really hate the competi- like competitions for like a working class writer or uh, like ethnic minority competitions. Like I just, that have like one winner when actually like that's allowing the mainstream industry to let all the white, cis, male, privileged people still, like, dominate the industry while there's, like, a little pocket of opportunity for, like, thousands and thousands of other people who want, like, one role. Um, So it's frustrating. Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, to change that, we, you know, needs more levels of opportunity, but also, like, you you we. If you can't see it, you can't be it. And I think in that, that's an interesting sort of thing to articulate and begin to understand about how we do go about changing and giving more possibility and opportunity to people from working class backgrounds, which I myself are from. And I feel quite lucky that I'm in the position I am in. Um, But I know that your work is also focused on young women's working class stories as well. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's that's its heart, isn't it, of Brash? Again, why did that, why is that focus? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious, but, you know, can you talk us through it? Um, so I guess the, the first focus was with our first show, which was Shufiti, and that's kind of where it was born, um, which was based on real experience of um, myself, ex- my own experiences and, and my friend's experiences growing up. Um, and it kind of grew from that, Um so, I mean, so that was that was basically based on um, the kind of underage grooming culture, but particularly um, the kind of underage culture of working class girls um, in the northeast, which isn't necessarily all my own experiences. I'm very aware that within Newcastle, I do have some privilege as well. So I would never want to claim like the working class experience. Um but that's kind of where it where it started, and from there we um, we've kind of since then evolved to to it was really with raising shame, which was about um, period poverty and period stigma and their relationship for young people all across all across the city. Um, it was kind of through the research and development of that show that we really started to find the heart of what of what the company is which is basically about 
allowing young women in particular, but young people in general, to 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 see the contexts within which, um, and the kind of the, the agendas within which their experiences of sex, health, and relationships exist. Um, be, and and that was basically born because, th- just like. <laughs> There, are, there is no point in like, we can't make decisions about our experiences of like what contraceptive pill to take or like how, like how, why we hide our periods or whatever, whatever it might be um, without knowing like why those, why we're making those decisions. Like, why are we influenced in this way? Why are we doing this? Who's benefiting from, from these decisions that we're making? They're all embedded within like a culture of patriarchy, misogyny, classism, it's, there's always something at stake when we make these decisions, but we often don't know that we're making those decisions for that reason. And I think it's only once young young women in particular, but young people of all genders are able to kind of see the context within which their experiences exist, that they can then make decisions that are right for them rather than the powers that be, I suppose. So that's kind of the heart now, um, and just empowering young people to make decisions for themselves. So you've sort of touched on, on a little bit of your work and I just want to sort of, one of the most fascinating things about the last 25 weeks um, beyond sort of sitting in my front room as an office is uh, doing these podcasts and listening to people's processes or people talk about their process. So I know that your process is is quite multi-stranded and that moves towards a production of some kind at some point. Can you talk us through your process currently about how it sort of realizes itself yeah so it usually realizes i mean it always realizes itself from the direct kind of vocalization of an issue from a young person that we've worked with um so raising shame specifically came from streetwise young people's project which had started from the young people that meet there um based on their project m which was designed to give free sanitary products to i don't like using the word sanitary actually um free period products to to um to anyone who needs them basically um so that stemmed from that um and then the next show that we're developing as well stemmed basically from like when we performed raising shame in a school um there were other issues there was issues around uniform school policy and consent um, and uh, ownership of the female body that came up directly from um, our chats with the audience with year 10 girls afterwards. So that's kind of grown from that. So that's always the start of our process. Um, we don't... Sometimes it kind of can start with like an observation from myself about what's going on, particularly at the moment when we have less access to young people directly. Um but it always stems directly from from something that we've been told or heard from a young person. Um, And then from there, we usually do some workshops with different young people, depending on what it's about, usually from different areas of the city. Um, And those workshops usually involve being as open-ended as possible, talking to them about the issues um, that we're focusing on. 
um, it's we try and make the workshops as directed by the young people as possible. So we're there to kind of prompt, but we really don't want to like direct an opinion or like a route that it should go down. Um, we don't want to make any presumptions going in because, oh my God, if I'd made presumptions going in for Raising Shame, like it would have been a completely different show. Um, the breadth of stories to, is crazy. Yeah. Sorry? To keep it open, how difficult is it to sort of co-create? And uh, is that hugely enjoyable as an aspect of your work? If it, if it is co-creation that you're you're identifying there, yeah, I mean it's really exciting. It's it's um, there always comes a point where like you have to kind of take a, a direction, um, but I think keeping it open ended at the start is pretty is pretty easy. I mean, with raising, is this kind of what you mean? Yeah. So I think like with Raising Shame, it was, it was, it actually directed, it ended up directing the, the, the structure and the shape of the show. Um, I thought it was going to be a piece about just like, it could have even just been one person's story. Um, but actually it was a story of like 10 young people and that, so, and that only came from, from the workshops being so open-ended. Like, it literally would have been impossible to not do that. It would have been, like, a misservice to so many young people because people's experiences are so different. Obviously, you can't necessarily always have that as a format for a show. So I think you have to let, like, what comes out of workshops direct you kind of artistically to some extent. Um, and that will always be the heart of the creative process because I want to be representative, but you obviously also have to make artistic choices, which means that some voices aren't always heard. Um, and you have to make a powerful show at the end of the day. There's no point in cramming things in for the sake of it if it's not going to have impact. So then, so then you run those workshops, you, you sort of speak to participants, multiple participants. Yeah. And then as you said, you then have to write it. Yeah. Where does that then does that then change your that, that process for you about honouring those stories that have come to you? Like how do you then switch your brains, switch your brain, because you only got one, <coughs> um, from what I know, um, <laughs> into sort of like moving from that facilitation, co-creation world into yeah. then writing and then out of that back into the world of then shaping a, a piece of work? Um so it usually takes I'm just trying to use raising shame as an example so it would usually be like I would consolidate all the experiences and then from there I would write like a draft structure of of like different pockets of stories that could be included different strands of I have like different I have different things I have like different strands of characters and stories and then I have different strands of like really important themes that need to be included. So there was also bits in Raising Shame that was um, uh, like almost like mini poems about like the way that the global hygiene industry works, for example. So there was like those strands. And then there's also like the overall thread structure of how it's linked together. Um, and then so I'd usually do like a draft from that and I'd create characters that aren't they're not the people who've shared their stories with me, but they're kind of based on those people. Yeah. Um, obviously, all the people are anonymized. And then once the first draft is written, I'll go back in to uh, meet the young people who I've worked with. Um, we'll like 
we'll work on bits of the script that partic- that represent them and then we'll kind of get their feedback um check that there's nothing that they feel completely misrepresents their experience um take their kind of advice sometimes sometimes the advice is like artistic choices which is which is like which you have to obviously take some of it with a pinch of salt but equally the most the the heart of the matter with the second round of workshops is just to ensure that you haven't misrepresented anyone essentially or their experiences um and then I go back and do a rewrite um and then depending on, you know, if we've partnered with someone like Streetwise, for example, like we would have to check in with them about that, about how that it's all kind of okay with them, the script and things. Um, and then after that, I'd go into director mode, I suppose, and hire actors. What's that like as a writer where you have written something and then you present it to a group of young people they're not at the same time presented to I don't know other partners like how do you feel when you go is it like handing your homework yeah I, mean, I've, I, I, I can't write so I mean I've, I don't want that experience but I can imagine it I absolutely hate it it's funny because like in the long run like you look back and you think actually like that was much better because of that but at the time and obviously it depends like it depends who you're talking to it depends if you trust them I think trust is so important when it comes to like partners and artistic control and things because also you have to really make sure that you know they're your partners they've got a stake in it but equally like you're 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 in the artistic role yeah um so there has to be a real trust between both both parties I think in that sense um it's scary I hate I really hate it but (laughs) I I I definitely think that in the long run like I look back and I would I wouldn't actually like even at the time I'm like oh when I when I get this script back when I'm in control I'm just going to change it all back (laughs) actually I don't usually change it all back in the end I'm going to put all those swear words back in but I usually don't in the end so um yeah, I think it's good for me to kill my babies sometimes. <laughs> yeah, truly. It's, a, it's the hardest thing, isn't it? It's horrible yeah. when somebody comes to like, you know, yeah, it's like when you, I don't know, you do a a, I don't know, a tech a dress run or something for somebody and they all come and watch and you're like, oh God. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Oh, that's the worst when you're just not ready and you're like, I promise it's going to be better in a day. <laughs> <laughs> so then you said, after you've been through that writing process and that sort of necessary pain you're talking about, about, you know, showing people drafts of work, mm. you then said, you then, you then sort of put your director's hat back on. And so what does a brash rehearsal room feel like, look like? How does it sort of move it through its time together? <clears throat> uh, so it usually starts with a couple of weeks of R&D, um, which is just playing with, like, we usually do a read through, but then after that, we spend a couple of weeks just like playing with like the themes and the characters and how we relate to to, to what's going on um, in the show, finding our own connectivity to it. Um, it's really important to me that like that there's a really good morale amongst director and cast. Like I've worked in teams before where like if if there's no like trust or if if everyone isn't invested in the piece equally then like it's just a disaster waiting to happen because you don't have like their respect like they won't people won't put in the same amount of work um people won't be as reliable or as professional um 
And when it's your baby, that's really frustrating. So I think it's important to make sure it's everyone's baby and that everyone is like personally invested in it in some way. So that's kind of what the first couple of weeks I like to establish. Um, and then from there, it's it's kind of just, I mean, we, we, we work sometimes with Viv Wood, who's a uh, movement director. Um, she's amazing at, at R&D stuff and kind of, opening up new kind of avenues of 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 performing stuff my strength is definitely in the rhythm of a piece and the way a piece sounds um so it's always really helpful for me to always also have someone who whose strength is movement um and visual so that we can kind of marry those things together um and I definitely have like allow a lot of input from actors as well it's quite a collaborative process um but yeah like this I think I just think like the rhythm and the sound of a piece is so important to me and like I think it can really make or break a scene um especially when the piece is like poetic or um like a lot of what I write the the kind of impact of certain points really depends on the sound being right. Um, really depends on like pauses being in the right place, the pace being being right at certain points to build to like it's really important for me. Um, and do you and so when you're rehearsing, do you know? So I, I often think about like a score, like a musical score, like a piece of text. So do you know what sort of notes you want to achieve before you go in? And if you do, do they then change when you meet a other group of creatives you know, in the room as you, same room as you, that then sort of make your music go elsewhere? Yeah, a bit of both. I think I definitely go in with an idea and then sometimes it can definitely change. Or sometimes, like, another creative team or actors can perform it in a different way and I hate it and it, <laughs> it solidifies my own, like, pre-thoughts. But obviously, I think, but, like, you have to be open to 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 it changing depending on um on kind of what other people come up with because I mean what's in your own head like you just don't know what other people what's in other people's head I think just sometimes when it's the way that I like I've written it to a certain score so then it's like it just doesn't translate if it if that's not if that's not kind of like kept do, oh, yeah, do you know totally. what I mean? I, no, I do know <laughs> I what feel you mean. like I sound like I'm a dictator now. No, you really don't. I think, you know, it's 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 that sort of, that dichotomy between director and director-writer. Because, you know, if I direct something, I've definitely done my work around it, but I haven't written it. And there's something different in that, definitely. Yeah, and I've never directed anything that I haven't written. And I don't, th- I honestly don't think I could. Like, I, I, I think... And I definitely, like I say, like I'm much more of a of a sound director than like I'm much better at sound than visual, and I'm very collaborative when it comes to visual. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting as a director writer, and I think and I think that can sometimes be a bad thing if you're the writer and director because I think sometimes you can be too precious. So I think you have to watch that uh, definitely. But I couldn't direct someone else's work, I don't think. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, how, how would, so I'm just going to keep going on about this, about this a little bit, about how do you then get a company to hear your score? Is it through just gently provoking? Is it through, like, I don't know, 
lots of different exercises? Is it just do it that way? Or, um... <laughs> no, it's not like that. <laughs> I hope. Well, it's not like that. It's definitely not like that. I mean, I'm, I've not, obviously never been in your rehearsal room from, from speaking yeah. to you. It doesn't ever yeah. feel like that. But I'm interested to know, no. as a writer and also as somebody directing their writing, how yeah. do you get a group, a company to hear your score? Uh, so sometimes I will, like, I will perform it um, as, like, an example, not as, like, do it this way, but as a kind of, like, well, uh, so there's a bit of Raising Shame that I also did as a solo piece and that's actually a piece which the, where the rhythm is really important so I showed them a video of when I performed it just as an example to be honest some of it was like it was crap compared to the way that the actors did it but <clears throat> rhythmically it was like a good example so I do a lot of like showing but then also I think oh it's hard without being in the actual rehearsal room Not to know totally. how I do it. Especially having been in a rehearsal room for like 25 weeks. I think it's often about like finding, it's about finding the point in the journey in that piece. So like if it's a 10 minute scene where there's a lot of, like the journey of the scene matches the rhythm of it in terms of like yeah. the emotional journey, the connection between the characters like what's going on action wise between them at the time how their relationship is evolving through the scene what's going on in the game of the scene like what is the game at this point who's winning who's losing da, 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 da. so all this stuff in I think talking to the actors about like how that influences the way that it sounds and how the way it sounds will express that journey is probably the best way of doing it I think because yeah, once no. you understand that, then you think, oh, shit, this is... Sorry, am I allowed to swear? <laughs> um, this is a moment of... This moment's actually really, really quite special and, like, deserves a kind of stillness. And it's only once you understand the what's happened in between these characters at that point that you can kind of understand how that affects the way it sounds. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we taught a director on this about, I don't know, about 10, 15 weeks ago. He said, you know, for him, it was about if you love something, you move towards it. If you don't love something, you move away from it. And then you turn out and you speak and that's directing. I mean, he was being flippant and it's not his process. But, you know, as he sort of was moving into something, he's, he was sort of, that was the sort of world he was representing in his head of going, that's, it, it, it's hard, that's his that's its heart, you know, mm. the movement, the psychological movement is move towards it, move away from it, you know, mm. turn out, there you go. Um, and I think it's really interesting about that sort of psychology of movement of, you know, how you find those peaks and troughs inside of scenes and then also how mm. that shapes the wider narrative um, because it, yeah. it, it all has to add up to mm. be cohesive and tell a story that an audience wants to sit and watch. And on that about an audience, what can... So just say um, there's people that haven't seen a piece uh, a piece by Brash or been to a Brash show. Um, can you tell an audience what they might expect, what it might look like, what they might feel, what they're going to get from it? Mm. I told you there would be 15 questions in one. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say that Brash shows, uh, they weave together real stories of teenagers living in the Northeast um, through spoken word, uh, punchy dialogue, uh, a lot of humour, often cringeworthy humour, that's so close to our own reality that we're not sure uh, if we're comfortable 
enough to watch it, but that's often um, used on a journey towards uh, a more serious message. Um, and also some of the most beautiful music. We work a lot with Roma Yagnik, um, who is such a beautiful sound designer. Um, and I've found that uh, my work and her work really complement each other and really create this kind of spellbinding effect. So um, big up to Roma um, and would really love to keep working with her. Um, but I'd say the main thing about it is that it's really unapologetic. It's it's brash, if you like. Um, it doesn't cut any awkward corners. Um, and basically, if it's happening to teenagers, we're going to talk about it. We're not scared to talk about it. So uh, tell me how difficult or easy it's been to establish brash over the last three years in the Northeast. And I know that you work with Straight Boys Opera and have done regularly. Like, how... What top tips would you give uh, anybody that wants to set up their own company if you have any which I imagine you have but it's sometimes hard um I'd say be prepared to do a lot of free work but I'd probably say that to anyone who works in the theatre industry not just setting up a theatre company um I would say don't waste too much time on on like knocking on the doors of people who aren't like who, who make false promises or, like, aren't reciprocating. Really focus on the people who are invested in you and what your message is. That's not to say, like, give up straight away because, like, if people don't know you, they're not going to... They're very busy, you know, they're not necessarily... Like, make the effort to kind of get to know people, go see loads of theatre and stuff like that. But I don't think... I, th I think that sometimes you can waste a lot of time... Um, like, I think you have to know when to when to stop, like, trying to partner with certain people. And I think also it's really important to know where you sit. I don't think necessarily, like, the right path is always, like, right, this is, like, this is where I'm going to be, like, most famous or most well-known. So I'm going to kind of reach for that peak, like, know what, what who your work is for, why you're actually doing it. Um, and where it's going to have the most impact, because often that's actually where you'll find the most success anyway. Um, you know, it might be that your work isn't supposed to be on, uh, like, I don't know, anywhere, like stage one, northern stage, it could be live theatre, whatever it might be that you're, or it might be that your work fits more in community spaces or school spaces or, or wherever it might be. Um, just, like, think about your audience rather than like, I think it's just really important to like keep a clear path of, of like the long-term goal rather than like, this is where I'll get the most reputation or whatever. Yeah, it and I think the, the other thing with finding people that you trust, it's not just about finding people you trust, it's also like finding a tribe of people who are invested enough in what you're doing to like not necessarily um, be expecting to take like, loads of paid employment to begin with which is a real struggle because which 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 obviously when you're trying to build a company which is about like working class voices and working class artists um and fairness and equality of opportunity you don't it's, it's really hard to be in a situation where you can't always when you begin you can't always pay each other 
as fairly as you should be paying yourselves. And that's that's the really difficult thing about beginning a theatre company or any business, I suppose, is that when you start off, like it it takes a long time to get to the point where where you where you're earning enough money. Um and and that along with finding people who have the same vision as you, who you really trust artistically or to do the right role, particularly in the Northeast, um is just really hard and it does and I think it takes a lot of patience definitely which is why it took me so long to find a producer as well so like for for a long time I was just doing everything um which really eats into creative time what's it like to have to wear all of those hats so like as you just said there like it it didn't give you a lot of creative time because you were doing everything what's it like to have to manage all that and how and how does how do you cope with it it's hard (laughs) um and it's very busy and also like a lot you end up taking on a lot of roles that aren't necessarily your expertise so in some ways though it's though it's really useful now that I've kind of done a lot of producing of my own work just by necessity so it's useful now because it means I know what's going on in like all areas of my team but it's by no means like my strength and I think it can sometimes it's really hard to like maintain the balance between um like between all the different hats of of like getting into the right spaces advertising in the right way building your branding in the right way um and then actually making the work itself um fundraising all that kind of stuff um and the, or, something always falls short. It's so it's like such a luxury when you actually get to a point where, like, you've got people that you trust that you just know are just going to get on with stuff, um, and and that you don't need to kind of make sure that they're that they're that they're actually doing what they're going to say they do. Um, it's such a luxury when you get to that point. And currently, you feel like you're in a good good space after slogging your guts out for the last sort of four or five years to get to this point yeah I think so I think I mean we want to get we want to get to the point where like the core team can just can function and be like paid to work every day which isn't which definitely isn't where we are yet but we hopefully will be in not too long um at the moment we're at the point where like we're pretty confident in getting the right money for different projects um, in being able to like pay ourselves really fairly project by project and make a living out of that um, which is really amazing and great and um, and and it's kind of a chicken and egg thing as well because as you get the right team and then you get the right work because you've got a really good team getting the right pots of money like getting managing it in the right way managing your professionalism all that stuff um, but but when you're just doing it on your own, it's it's really harder to like reach those, reach that point. So it is a bit chicken and egg. Like it takes a while to get to the point where you've you can kind of achieve both. I'm going to move us not seamlessly onto uh, because I'm not that skilled as an interviewer. Um, what have you been doing over the last like well i mean it's not a lock it's not a lockdown podcast but it definitely sort of has been brought about by because of lockdown 
What have you been doing as Bethan and as Brash over the last, which I think now is 26 weeks to sort of like, you know, find your way through it, keep Brash moving forward. Like what's been happening in your world? Well, um, there's been quite a lot. I mean, to be honest, I spent three months just, I'm, I'm pregnant. So I spent the first three months oh, just like, congratulations. thank, thank you. <laughs> um, I was just like sick and in bed a lot of the time. <laughs> so, so the progress of Brash was a little bit stinted, but luckily I think the progress of everyone is a little bit stinted at the moment. So um, it's probably not the worst time to be in that state. But now that I'm suddenly full of energy again, um, it's been like, it's been moving quite, quite, quite well, actually. Um, we're basically focusing on the moment at like, what we're going to do when when all this ends who knows when that'll be um but but we've spent the last few months basically sort of re not rebranding but but sort of relaunching as focusing on like specifically on education specifically in education settings um around sex education there's like a, there's a new compulsory sex education curriculum now that's just been released this year um so we kind of want to be there to, to support schools with that um and obviously with everything that's going on with covid who knows when we're next going to be able to get into theatres um because even once we're back I mean there's going to be so many hurdles backlogs all that stuff so I think we've really decided to like refocus on where our work actually has the most important impact which is um, in schools with young people so um, we've kind of been focusing on that kind of relaunching on kind of developing our strategy for how that'll work um, we're potentially considering um, doing a bit of an audio project on some scenes from Raising Shame but I'm, I'm a big believer in only doing like audio or film stuff if like that is like if like the audio and film element is at the core of the work from the start kind of thing. Like I'm not a believer in just sticking it on audio or screen for the sake of it because we can't do live. But at the same time, I'm very aware that we need to kind of like maintain some creativity and some exposure. So if we do do an audio project, it'll definitely be like something where the audio element is there from the at the heart of it and that it's really well designed around that to be an impactful project like in its own right um and then we're also developing a new show um around the uniform policy um and consent and um and kind of uh, what boys and girls and well people of all genders are taught about their um about ownership of women's bodies from 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 things like school rules like what do they what do they teach young people um so as part of the development of raising shame as well we're, we're going back into schools next month just to because obviously with covid like some experiences of of period stigma period poverty might have changed um in relation to what's going on um there's themes of domestic violence there's themes of um class politics, racism, all that stuff is in the piece. And I think it's really important that we go back to young people and just just check that what we've done is still relevant. If there's anything that we need to reconsider when 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 returning the show to schools, uh, just to make sure it's still relevant to young people. Um, so we're pretty busy, pretty busy. And we're still got we're still working with Streetwise as well. Um, but 
I think that's kind of projects that we maybe can't talk about yet. But but yeah, there's there's lots there's lots going on, lots of irons in the fire. We just got to hope that we can uh, raise the money to do it all. <laughs> yeah, truly. You know, I think you know it's it's you know, hopefully at some point we can come out of this and you know as you say move forward and um and on that like what what do you uh as a leader of a company want to see for the northeast coming out of this i think it's important that we all that we all think as a community about how we move forward rather than us thinking like how as an individual company are we going to get to the forefront of this when we get out um, I think the only way forward at this point is for everyone to work together, like venues, companies, um, audiences, all that stuff. I think, you know, there is also opportunity within this experience to, to really think about how we relate to audiences, how we make work. Um, and I don't mean over Zoom. <laughs> I mean, you know, how do we... How do we, like, move our, our processes, like, to the heart of communities um how do we make them connected to work from the start how do we like make culture more accessible to everyone like maybe this is an opportunity to just kind of stop and and kind of like reflect a little bit on how we move forward yeah Yeah. I agree you know I think you know it's about sort of completely redrawing it isn't it In, in its entirety and you know and I think that's quite a, an amazing point about going, how do we make ourselves as an industry feel more accessible and more, you know, useful to our communities uh, moving forward out of this? Because I think there's going to be lots of stories to tell out of it, but at the same time, like we need to tell them well and with care. Mm. I totally agree. I totally agree. I've got one more for you, which is uh, uh, producer Johnny's favourite question. Um, I've been trying to find different ways to ask it, but I can't, so I'm just going <laughs> to ask it. <clears throat> um, so, Bethan, what have you been uh, watching, listening, playing, reading over the last few months to sort of, like, decompress from all the activity you've been doing with Brash? <laughs> oh, my God, you don't want to know about the things I really I've do. Watched. This is the, this is the most exciting Everyone's going to think, everyone, like, probably thinks I'm No, they don't, honestly. The, the amount of stuff that Johnny and I have, like, you know, from, you know... <laughs> properly brilliantly trashy tv yeah tell favorite bit so like yeah regale us with it if i'm being all like cultured and civilized i have actually been listening to um the biker audio stories from young company which have been so oh, nice. beautiful like completely like i knew it was going to be good but completely exceeded expectations uh it's a really nice way to start my mornings i listen to like one a day so that's nice um but if i'm being like honest about like downtime outside of brash like at the moment i'm properly properly like binge watching um married at first sight australia oh my my god God. so am i oh my god how good is it oh oh well i mean yeah go on go on you tell us yeah you're gone it's just like uh, there's so much treachery oh my god it's so it's so terrible television (laughs) sometimes I can't believe I'm watching it, but... Yes, uh, yes, I know exactly and, you know, what you I'm, This is going to sound excuse-making, but like, uh, Louise watches it like religiously. Uh-huh. Essentially, about 10 days ago, I think I watched all of Series 4 in about three days, 
And at the end of it, I, I had sort of, I think my brain went into some sort of like shutdown. Oh my God, now, so have you gone back to the start of the series? I'm just no, watching we the got, No, we went one. to season, we watched all of season four and then I've sort of dropped out of season five, but I'm still aware of all the stories that are being told in it. So yes, I'm with you on it. It's like high end oh. Australian EastEnders, but with real people. Oh my God, it's amazing. It's just, yeah, it's brilliant. Absolutely love it. So I'm a big, I'm a big lover of trash TV, I have to say. Me too. Um, all the trash telly. I'm always watching it. I haven't really been. I haven't really. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm not. I'm not very cultured at the moment. I'm really trying to be more cultured in the mornings before I start work, but and just listen to like one thing a day or something. But I'm. I'm not really into like. I, I can't watch like films of theatre. I hate it. Mm. I can't do it. Um. And that's I need, no. Go on, sorry. I just, I'm, I like feed off live energy. It's just like, it's, I've just got such a thing for live energy, both in the work I watch and the work I make. So um, I've, I've just not really taken to to the kind of alternatives online, which I know people have to do at the moment, you know, but um, it's not something that I'm really, really drawn to. Yeah, I think, you know, I think a lot of people have said the same thing where they, they, they can't engage with it in that way. And mm. they've been finding sort of other spaces in watching endlessly, you know, slightly rubbishy TV to sort of like give them some escape into. And I think that's absolutely spot on and what mm-hmm. everybody should be doing um, to some degree. You know, and I think, you know, also trying to give yourself a little bit of brain feed on a morning is quite a smart thing. And I might do the same thing from now on. Um, <laughs> no, genuinely, because I think that's quite interesting about, you know, how you sort of also keep your brain moving forward in a way that feels productive. Um, yeah definitely and I think like it's I have like been very aware that like oh my god by the time I next get in a rehearsal room I won't have directed a show for like however many months years even (laughs) um so like for me it's really important to kind of just keep exercising my brain in that way if I can like keep thinking like right how did they how did they create that what did what did what kind of techniques were they using mm -hmm. like why did they do that um just so that <laughs> I'm not a nervous wreck the next time I have to be in a room with actors. Yeah, totally. And you know, mm. it's like what's one of the best things about our job is like you know you're always you're always curious about what other people do, and, and I think mm. that's like learning what other people do or how people access you know uh, creative brains is is genuinely you know as I've said one of the best bits of over the last twenty five weeks of listening to people talk about their work. Um, so Beth and Kitchen, thank you so much for a brilliant hour. You're very um, welcome. It's been really, really fascinating to hear you talk about your work and uh, good luck with it all moving forward. And thank you again. And hopefully see you soon at some point. Oh, I hope so. Thank you very much for having me. No problem. <laughs> Take care. I'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Our thanks to Bethan for taking the time to talk brash of the highest quality and make work from the heart. It's great that they're here in the northeast creating noise around issues that regularly get ignored. Thank you to the Hush to Monculus that is producer Johnny, aka Johnny Rothwell, for editing the podcast, to Mark Melville for soundtracking, and to Chris Clayton Scott for doing all the work to get it to you. Finally, thank you for taking the time to listen. Really appreciate it. Please do take a look at the show notes with links to all the resources and websites that we talked about. And also, if you want to subscribe or leave some thoughts, you know what to do. Thanks again.